Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Dr. Eva Altabelli started her career working as a filmmaker in New York City while exploring mindfulness, yoga, neuroscience, and expanded states of consciousness. Returning to school, Eva Altabelli completed a psychiatric residency and fellowship in addiction. Eva is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Her career evolved working in detox, rehab, and private practice, as well as consulting in psychedelics, addiction and recovery, teaching, and mentoring. She is certified in psychedelic therapy and research from the California Institute of Integral Studies and by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies to treat PTSD with MDMA. She holds multiple psychoanalytic and alternative trainings and certifications, including HICOMI and master level certification in integrated energy therapy. During her career, Dr. Altabelli has evolved a holistic practice integrating mind, body, and spirit into the healing process. She specializes in creative ways to help her clients find their way to recovery and wholeness. So I'm so glad that you could be with us, Dr. Altabelli. And, and would it be okay today if I call you Eva? As yes, part of, please. Oh, Thank you. Great. I've known Eva for several years. And one of the things that Eva has taught me already through some of our collaborative work is that there's a whole new frontier happening around psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, and people are talking about it. And it's a really exciting time of a steep learning curve actually for, for so many of us. And so I'm so pleased that you could be with us today and uh, just wanna welcome you with, with open arms. Oh, thank you so much. It is truly my favorite topic. It's so exciting and it's present and I'm glad to have the opportunity to share this information so that it can be more conversational and more available for people to learn about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And like we were talking about earlier, to, to really spread the word and help people understand what, what's really going on out there when it comes to research and when it comes to the, the clinical trends that are, are really happening around this so that it's not so mysterious. So with that said, uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with psilocybin, uh, what exactly is it? Psilocybin mushrooms are not plants or animals. They are in a kingdom, all their own fungi. Some, some feel this this kingdom, because it's not a plant or an animal, has a consciousness of itself. 
psilocybin is kind of nature at its best. The mushrooms feed off decay, bringing the nutrients into their root system, which is all connected in a mycelial network. So they share information, water, nutrients, and they metabolize waste. And through that growth is available. Like the new green growth is available as there's a, on Fantastic Fungi is a movie Mm -hmm. that some, most people have probably seen. And there is a time-lapse photography image of a mouse that's dead. And the mushroom grows up around the mouse and the mouse gets eaten up and metabolized by the mushroom. And then there's nothing for a second because all the nutrients go down into the earth. And then comes some fresh green sprouts. So it's really kind of nature at its finest. Hmm. Mushrooms in general. Psilocybin specifically is a prodrug. It is metabolized to psilocin in the body. And if you look at the biochemical image of psilocin and serotonin, they are almost identical. Hmm. So I've already learned something, I believe. So, so psilocybin is, is not exactly parallel with, with mushrooms in general. Is that what you're sharing? I think psilocybin is a chemical compound in the mushrooms. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gets converted to the active compound psilocin once it's ingested. And psilocin is what the big pharma, <laughs> so, so to speak, is making. They're not making psilocybin, they're making psilocin because this is the active form that we ingest. Hmm. So big pharma is, is already dipping into the development and, and distribution? Absolutely. And the legalities of psilocybin are different in different states and countries. So hmm. in Canada, it's a little bit more legal. So I know people, I have clients that are telling me that they ordered psilocybin online from a Canadian company. And I'm like, hmm. how is that happening? But yes, so there are a lot of companies that are definitely in the process of working towards creating in the lab a marketable product. Sure. So if a client or a patient was interested in learning more about, about working with uh, psilocybin as, as a healing agent, w- what do you recommend? What, what is the first step? I have a little link I send to people. Uh, Dr. James Fadiman is a psychologist and he was on the forefront of using LSD for microdosing and for macrodosing for therapeutic dosing before it was deemed illegal. When it became illegal, rescheduled in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So Dr. James Fadiman has a book and an online presence where he gathers vast amounts of information, mostly about microdosing, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that are using between 150 to 200 milligrams of psilocybin um, to to offer a a dosing, a way of understanding the dosing. A big macro heroic dose, like a a 
tripping dose is like five grams. Mm-hmm. Um, three grams is also a tripping dose, but it's lighter. One gram is like taking a hike with friends in nature. You're a little giggly, colors are brighter, things look different, but you, you do feel it. Half a gram, that's 500 milligrams, would mm-hmm. be too high of a microdose because you, it would be perceptible. By microdosing, we mean a sub-perceptible dose, which is usually in the range of 150 milligrams to 200 milligrams. Mm. And that's what clients take either every other day or four days on, three days off to augment their mood. And it has been helpful for depression, not as much for anxiety, for some a little bit with ADHD and largely for rigid thinking and creativity. Hmm. So I, I I think what I'm hearing you say is there's certain levels that are part of getting high basically, but microdosing is about finding that therapeutic dose that is going to be effective in, in, increments that, that there's that little bit, maybe you said every other day, is that, is that a a typical amount of of microdosing? The goal behind microdosing is that you don't feel it. And people Mm. are attracted to that the same way they have been attracted or not attracted to the antidepressants as a mood lift. I didn't mean to put a bad spin on the getting high because the five grams and or three grams is not Potential could be for getting high, but it's also used in the clinical trials at those more significant doses to address existential angst. The first study was in 2011 with Dr. Charlie Grobe here at UCLA with late stage cancer patients, existential anxiety associated with a terminal diagnosis. And it has been quite transformative for a number of clients that have gone through those research studies. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and and tell me if this sounds right, we're not here to judge, right? We're here to be curious. We're here to actually know that there's not a cookie cutter answer for any of this. But what I hear you saying is that you've had the experience again and again and again with the people you work with, where there are specific um, clinical goals and, and that you track that and see how, in this case, the microdosing seems to impact uh, the patients that you work with. Absolutely. And there are different goals with different doses. Even therapeutically, there's the sub-threshold dose, and then there's the mildly higher dose, which would offer a psycholytic opportunity. And then there's the higher dose, which offers a psychedelic experience, which is usually offered with eye shades and headphones and a psilocybin-associated soundtrack for the duration of the four to five-hour journey that people are on. So a variety of doses and a variety of particular strengths, depending on what, what your goal is or mm-hmm. what you're trying to address. Sure. 
So I think it's important for our listeners to, to know that all of this is supervised, right? What you're talking about is about medical supervision or therapeutic supervision. And again, addressing whatever issues a patient comes in with and saying, this is what I think would be uh, some possibilities for you. You know, it's not legal yet. So once it is legal, this will be done in clinical practice, medically supervised. Right now okay. it is hyper-medically supervised because it's only procured in research. That's really important to uh, specify. What would you say along those lines, are we on the cusp of it not being illegal or where, where do you see that going? Yes, psilocybin is going to be not only decriminalized, but prescribable, I believe next year in Oregon. It is currently decriminalized in Denver and Oakland. I believe it's also decriminalized in Mexico. In Canada, you can apply to the government for use of psilocybin with your patients for a particular reason. And they are more accessible to green light that than we, mm. we have the opportunity to do that here in the States. There is a way that you could apply for an expanded access type use of these medications until they are classified or reclassified, mm -hmm. but that I think prescribable is still probably four or five years off for psilocybin. Okay. We're going to see MDMA much sooner. Okay. So thank you for, for clarifying that. To, to shift gears a bit, I want to talk for a moment about ketamine, which is also another kind of mysterious. I think there's so many people who hear about it, but don't really know what, what, what it is. So how is ketamine used therapeutically? And what is ketamine really? Ketamine is a disassociative anesthetic. It was used commonly as an anesthetic agent. I believe it was during the, I can't remember if it was the Vietnam War or it began use in the battleground because it's enormously safe which is why it evolved to be used in the pediatric and animal population, veterinary population. Some non-traditional practitioners were using it as early as 1960s. Um, Salvador Roque is kind of a renegade psychologist in Mexico. He was using ketamine and a, a few other psychedelics mixed with noxious noises and difficult to see movies to try to create an environment where you would really just bring people to the edge. He called it psychosynthesis. The goal was to kind of break people down to put them back together. Mm. John Lilly found ketamine to be addictive, but also enormously therapeutically beneficial. In 2019, the FDA reclassified S-ketamine intranasal spray to be used for depression. And it has been used in a number of ways for the next few years, a variety of routes of administration and different mm -hmm. dosing achieve different goals. Mm -hmm. Anesthesiologists 
tend to be using this medication in an IV format. It had been noted to be beneficial for treatment, medication treatment resistant depression and suicidality. It was dose specific and timing specific. Higher doses mm. and a series had been helpful. Even one was helpful in the emergency room. And then a series of two per week for three weeks to help with medication resistant depression was a protocol that was talked about. I'm a psychiatrist, more psychotherapeutically driven. So I find uh, ketamine to be beneficial to augment a psychotherapeutic process. It tends to naturally lead us into needing, needing to learn about internal family systems because people start talking about parts and they start talking mm -hmm. about their, the ability to witness aspects of themselves, which creates more space intrapsychically for them to process things. I have found in my practice that shifting from medication management with the standard medications, Prozac, Paxil, Abilify, they, they suppress symptoms and end up feeling a little more palliative, but people stay a bit more stuck in where they are and it takes longer through their therapeutic process to um, make changes. Ketamine seems to melt away the defenses. It kind of naturally melts them away so that it is easier to access core drivers of our behaviors and responses. And it seems that clients are more able to look at this aspect of themselves without judgment or anger. And they have not the, not as much of the compassion and empathy as you get with MDMA, but there is more, just more space. You know, it's a dissociative, but um, it seems more that it disconnects the emotion from the story. People describe it like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, where they are present, but they can see significant things that happened in their lives pass by them, and they don't come with the emotional charge that they had previously experienced them with. Sure. The one thing I wanted to ask before we shift to MDMA is if someone comes in and to, to talk with you and you have this clinical gut sense that they would be a good candidate for, for ketamine, can you describe who that person, that profile might be? When clients come in, I feel like they might be a good candidate for ketamine therapy for the series if they're quite depressed and they need the series, but that's not as much what I offer. I might refer them to an IV infusion clinic if they are so terribly depressed that 
you're uh, that I start thinking, geez, this client might benefit from a higher level of care to avoid an inpatient experience. Uh, a couple of ketamine infusions might lift them out of that darkness. Mm. From a psychotherapeutic process, I find clients that have any sense of being stuck in any aspect of things that are holding them back from living this a, a life that's how they imagine it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for some reason, the word hope came yeah. to me. Yeah. Right. It, it's also really good for trauma. You know, trauma is so much easier to carry around tightly locked up in boxes when it's in the box for so long, it's hard to imagine how to get it out. Ketamine is a more gentle approach at being with somebody and allowing them to access these parts of themselves from a witnessing more compassionate place with the goal of integration, all of their parts. But it, 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 it invites the process with less re-traumatization of the experience. Sure. So let, let's shift to, to MDMA. And for our listeners who don't know what MDMA is, um, what is it and, and how is it used therapeutically? So MDMA is 3,4-methyldeoxymethamphetamine, commonly known as ecstasy or molly. It is an amphetamine-based medication that was actually rediscovered by Sasha Shulgin, and he shared it with Leo Zeff, a psychologist in the 60s who used it for individual group and couples therapy. It downregulates the blood flow to the amygdala, which is our fear home, and increases oxytocin, thereby increase, which is a hormone created uh, or secreted during orgasm and breastfeeding, which engenders compassion and connection. So generally speaking, MDMA, fun, club drug, drug of abuse, used therapeutically in the later 60s and 70s, reclassified as a drug with no medicinal benefit in 85. That's when MAPS was started by Rick Doblin to begin research with MDMA for PTSD. And it has been transformative for a number of clients with PTSD. That's a good example of where it sounds like there's been plenty of research, there continues to be research, and there's lots of anecdotal evidence about a person with post-traumatic stress benefiting from MDMA. Is that what we're saying? Oh, yes. Yeah. And there's tons of videos online. If you go on maps.com, I think that's the website. And again, can you um, talk a little bit about maps? Not everybody is familiar. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, founded in 1986. Rick Doblin had a a vision, and it was to make these drugs available for, for therapy to help people. 
And he fought with the powers that be that didn't want these drugs to be reclassified and Mm -hmm. has very carefully structured research. He went through phase one clinical trials, phase two clinical trials, and now he is at the end of a phase three clinical trial. And in order to apply to the DEA to reclassify a drug that they have previously deemed as having no medical benefit, you have to show them Um, you have to be in your third phase clinical trial. So they will be applying this year for reclassification of MDMA in the first quarter of 2023. Mm. His studies, not just him, but like this whole organization, there are so many people involved. Annie and Michael Mithoffer uh, do a lot of the MAPS trainings and they have developed a protocol to address PTSD with MDMA that is therapeutically intensive. There's about 42 hours of therapy. Wow. Uh, An an initial assessment for appropriateness, Mm -hmm. probably three introductory sessions to create uh, a connection because if the client, the clients primarily need to feel safe in order to have a beneficial experience. Actually, that is an important piece with all of these psychedelics Mm -hmm. because they are a non-ordinary state of consciousness and it can be very unsettling. So the most important piece is that one actually feels cared for and safe enough Mm -hmm. to drop into this space. Mm -hmm. Um, Set and setting are enormously important for all three of these medications that we talked about, psilocybin, ketamine, and MDMA. Set refers to the mindset of the individual client, and setting is anything you see, feel, touch, smell, anything that is in your sensory environment. Um, So just the protocol, uh, the initial assessment, uh, probably three introductory meetings, Uh, an eight hour medicine session, which is intensive for both the individual and the sitters. Usually there's two, a male and a female, followed by three integration sessions, another medicine session, three integration sessions, another medicine. Hmm. So it's three medicine sessions and a number of integration. Integration being the far and above most important part in making any sustained change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds really, really thoughtful and, and, and quite thorough. Yeah. Which is, I think is important when we're talking about something that a lot of people don't understand, but also there's a lot of folks who unfortunately are, are looking for the quick fix. And it doesn't sound like this is about that per se, Correct. Yeah, that's an important piece. And even if there is a a quick fix that one experiences in, you know, going up to the mountain and seeing this shiny new object and you have this glimmer of transformation, the way to hold it is to work it, to, to process it, to be in relationship with it, to be in relationship with other people with it. It's also culturally disarming for some to have such a large, deep transformative experience 
and then go back to their lives as they were. Mm-hmm. So there is a there's a larger piece of community integration that is very helpful to continue the integration process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds so essential. I'm wondering, is there anybody who would not be a candidate for these um, approaches? Absolutely. The research studies did not allow for anybody with psychosis. I think even bipolar one that leaned towards psychosis. Um, Of course, the dopaminergic activation, I can understand why, and it's not a good idea. One concern that was available for discussion was people misdiagnosed with psychosis or schizophrenia, mm-hmm. because the, the terms are sometimes vague and subjectively delivered. So having the opportunity to dig a little deeper into what's causing this behavior mm-hmm. then frees more people up to benefit from this. Mm-hmm. Um, personality disorders were ruled out of the Mm. research study, I think not because they wouldn't benefit, more because it was uh, more difficult in the controlled, limited environment of the research study. Mm, So largely the conversation is, remains that it's very helpful for personality disorders as well. It's just more relational and um, corrective, experientially driven. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for, for clarifying all that. I'm wondering, Eva, if you had any, um, any takeaways that you would like our listeners to, to remember, if there was a few things about what's generating out there and what we've shared today, what, what would you really like them to, to take with them from our, our conversation? These are sharp tools and should be used with care. It's delicate and there's a a vast underground and I have not seen the underground as careful as one might need to be to hold space and offer a a sustained healing process quite as often as I would have liked. And that MDMA and ketamine are drugs Mm -hmm. of abuse. Psilocybin less so, but there is the potential and to, to have the right relationship and have the right intention behind any engagement in these medicines is of primary importance. So I wanted to just say something to you and, and to our audience that um, is so impressive to me because you are an addiction psychiatrist who is a psychedelic specialist. I don't run into folks like you very (laughs) often. And it's such a a breath of fresh air because it really is not only looking into the future, but I really, it's so palpable how you have a vision for how all of this can be integrated into what what really you you call uh, holistic psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to 
thank you on behalf of myself, the people that you speak to, the the client, the patients that you work with, et cetera. And I, I just so appreciate you. Thank you, Andrew. That's very kind of you. I am. I love to talk about this. It's exciting and it's hopeful and it's energizing and it's easy. It's an easy conversion, you know, like if you show somebody who's loves somebody in pain and watch them make a change and suddenly the inner critic has a different relationship with the rest of them. It's, it's just beautiful to see. Sure. So I, I hope you'll come back and visit again because this is just such vital information and, um, and I've so appreciated our, our time together today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening today. It was so terrific sharing the time with my colleague and friend, Dr. Eva Altabelli, and discussing this really significant cutting edge topic. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected. Mm -hmm.